0: The way we met is uh, last year, Ben and I, for the strides for the general, we were the two patient ambassadors. So that's how we met. We just, we walked, was it 5k? I don't remember.
1: Let's say it was more than that. It was like 25,000 kilometers.
0: (laughs) We walked it. No, and that's where we, that's where our friendship began. Next thing I know, Carl came out from behind the wall, also doused in gasoline, and he lit himself on fire.
1: We are about to dive into the minds of heroes that battled through adversity and came out the other side transformed into something greater. Entrepreneurs on a mission to change the world. Athletes and performers with incredible ability for higher execution. Individuals making social change because they're unsatisfied with the status quo. Doctors pushing the boundaries of knowledge to push the needle on human potential. People that made the decision to be the hero of their story. This is Heroic Minds. Welcome back to the Heroic Minds Podcast. On today's episode, we have Niagara Regional Police Officer, Phil Sheldon. I was asked to give a talk at McMaster University and asked if I could split my talk down the middle so that I could do the second half of the presentation as a live podcast. The guest I had on stage with me was Phil Sheldon. And Phil really stole the show when he was sharing his incredible journey. So, Phil, Phil Sheldon. Niagara regional police officer nearly lost his life trying to rescue a woman trapped in a murder-suicide with her son. Phil ended up receiving the highest civilian medal for bravery in Canada. A couple points from the story are as follows. He entered the house to find a man and his mother doused in gasoline ending up with post-traumatic stress disorder, there was a pivotal point in Phil's journey where he felt he was in danger. One day, he was looking for his gun for protection. It was a very much irrational train of thought that led him to get the help he needed. Phil shares how he has not only refused to lose against PTSD, but has tapered off of so many of the medications he was told that he would need and has actually discovered medicinal marijuana. Those are a couple touch points in this episode, but there was a whole lot more, and Phil tells the entire story. Needless to say, Phil has ventured through a lot. Today, he is still living with, learning about, and helping others living with PTSD. His approach is that, again, he refuses to lose against PTSD, which is also the name of his organization, Refuse to lose. Refuse to lose raises money for first responders to access care needed to treat PTSD. Why you may ask? Because right now the cost for the standard care is too expensive for most people, especially when it is not covered by insurance. He is helping others refuse to lose against PTSD. Now, before we get to this episode, we always have to give a shout out to our friends at True Local, For those that have not heard of True Local, I feel sorry for you because it is the best meat delivery business on not only in Canada, but in the world. True Local has locally sourced high quality meats that they individually package, air seal, shows up to your doorstep on dry ice. The package it shows up in, now recyclable, and you get to choose exactly what you want. And you can change your order every single shipment No extra fee. You can cancel your shipment. No extra fee. You can decide the interval of when it arrives every 30 days, every 42 days, every 43 days. It's totally up to you. So the control is in your hands of when you want this unbelievable high quality meat to show up to your doorstep frozen and ready to throw in your freezer, take it out and thaw it out whenever you want. That's truelocal.ca. No hidden fees. They're honest, they're amazing. Check them out and if you wanna give them a try, use my discount code HeroicMinds25, all capital letters to get 25% off a regular size box and $10 off a personal size box. That's truelocal.ca. Last update, if you are enjoying these podcasts and have not left a positive review, the first three people from this date forward March 10th to leave a positive review will receive either a heroic hat or shirt in the mail. We will discuss over email and you can decide which you prefer. Alrighty, here's Phil Sheldon and I on stage at McMaster University talking PTSD, talking human performance, serious topics, some laughs on the way, and an unbelievable outcome.
0: So anyway, all right, so my name's Phil Sheldon. I am a Niagara Regional Police Officer. In 2015, July 5th, 2015, I was on my last night shift. These are pictures of me from the hospital. I apologize if some of them are too graphic. but I don't like to sugarcoat anything. So I was on my last night shift. Uh, I was heading to vacation the next day. My partner and I were just having a coffee, no donuts. And we uh, were just sitting around talking about what we we're going to be doing on our days off. A call came across the board. It was, wasn't in our district. There was someone else's zone. And whose zone it was, uh, he had just had a baby and his wife had just come home. So he was at home having dinner with her. So we said, why, why don't we just take it? Um, we're at this house all the time. The one, the subject gentleman um, is 50 years old. He suffers from schizophrenia. Periodically, he lived with his parents. Periodically, he would decide that he didn't need his medication, turn very violent and uh, act out. So it was routine. We would go, we would take him to the, to the hospital, get him formed on to the next call kind of thing. So that night, we uh, pulled in the driveway, 8.22 p.m., exited my vehicle, and I heard a scream that to this day still haunts me in my nightmares uh, from the mother. As Maestro was mentioning before about complacency, we did have 30 seconds of complacency. We went busting through the door running through the living room. I didn't notice he had had doused the entire house in gasoline, including his mother. I was about two feet from a wall that was jutting out. Next thing I know, Carl came out from behind the wall, also doused in gasoline, and he lit himself on fire. He came running towards me. I turned, I fell. I was fully engulfed in flames at that point. I got up. I remember watching the flames roll across the room and down into the mother, onto the mother who was in a wheelchair. So when I got up, I went over to the mom and I bear hugged her to pick her up, which ignited my face, my head, um, but I couldn't move her. And I, with all the adrenaline pumping and Everything you hear about adrenaline, people moving cars, I could not budge her, and it bugged me for a long time. Uh, I found out later on that he had actually tied her into the wheelchair. So we got out of the house. Um, I was taken immediately to the St. Catharines General with third and fourth degree burns to 50% of my body. Uh, From there, I was airlifted to Hamilton General Hospital. and I was in induced coma for a month and a half. I, once I was awake, I was in there for a few more weeks and then they took me to Sunnybrook after that. Um, actually, I just found out recently that I had actually died twice. Once on the way to the hospital and then once in the hospital. Um, I developed heterotropic ossification in both arms and three fingers. This is when uh, your body goes through trauma uh, it starts building new bone around the joints. So I've had over 200 surgeries. Um, My whole body's been skin grafted, as I tell my wife, except for my two money makers. Uh (laughs) Um. (laughs) She doesn't like when I broadcast that, but whatever. But I had to learn how to walk again, how to talk. Um, I still don't have feeling in my arms and legs. Um, That's why I walk around. I'm like one of those animals that as soon as I stop, I fall over, so I just have to keep moving here. Um, When I was in the hospital, I always said, it took me four days to learn how to walk in. They told me it'd take me six six months to a year. It took me four days. And I kept telling everyone, you know what, I refuse to lose. I'm sure Ben and I will talk about it later, but the power of positivity, how much it impacts your your life. So when I came out of the hospital, I wouldn't say anything to anybody. I bottled everything up inside, all my thoughts, my feelings, the flashbacks. I became extremely angry. I was frustrated. I wouldn't tell my wife, Tanya, about what was going on. Um, I felt my family would be better off without me. I thought about killing myself a couple times. Um, I thought if I just take all my medication, nobody was going to care. Or if I go hang myself, my family would be better off without me. And this still wasn't enough for me to get help. I refused to. I sat on a couch, watching cartoons because that's all I could watch because there's no fire. And then one day there was a car parked out front of the house. And I saw it from the bathroom window, and I barricaded myself in the bathroom. I thought it was someone, my ex-wife actually, coming to kill me. Uh, We have a great relationship. Uh, (laughs) So I thought she was coming to kill me. Um, So I barricaded myself in that bathroom. For a couple hours, I wouldn't let my wife in. She didn't know what I was doing. Then I told her to go get my gun. I was going out there to kill her before she killed me. I don't have access to the gun locker for obvious reasons. Um, She wouldn't give it to me. I eventually came out. She went upstairs crying. And I snuck out the back door, ran around the block, snuck up on the car. And it was a gentleman that was there to build a deck across the street. That's why I decided to start talking. It scared me that. I didn't really care what I did to myself or to my family, for that matter, at that point. I didn't care. But I was going to kill somebody that I had no clue who it was. So I told my wife about what was going on in my head, hoping that she would leave me. And she did the exact opposite. She started researching different ways to help me. I started seeing a psychologist in St. Catharines, who completely changed my life. I, uh, we found out quickly that there isn't a lot of help out there for people that suffer from PTSD, which at that point I wasn't diagnosed. I have complex PTSD, I wasn't diagnosed at that point but there was no help out there for first responders or anyone for that matter, unless you have a lot of money to pay for it. We found two retreats, one called Project Trauma Support in Perth. It's $1,000 a day to go. We obviously didn't have the money. Uh, my wife reached out to them, and from benefactors I've never met, I was able to go. Came home from that week and I was on cloud nine for a few days. And then all of a sudden, I started relapsing again. So then Bill and Lynn Rusk from Badge of Life Canada called me. My wife had previously reached out to them, and they had called, and I turned them down. But they decided to call me again. They didn't give up on me. They had kept in contact with Tanya, which I didn't know at the time. And they invited me up there. To go there is $700 a week, and the difference between profit and not-for-profit. Uh, that includes lodging, food, therapy, which there's two therapists 24-7. You get about 100 hours of therapy in that week, which if you equate that to everyday life, if I go see my therapist, Dr. Balecki, one hour per week, it would take me two years to get the same amount of therapy. So I went, And I wasn't driving and uh, my wife's taking me up there and I was fighting with her because I didn't want to go and all I could think of is, is the Joker from Batman saying, oh, wait till they get a load of me, you know, like they have no clue what they're getting into here. And within 15 minutes of being there, I learned all the thoughts and feelings and everything that was going on was not my own. There's a room full of gentlemen that were going through the same thing I was going through. Even though we had different trauma, everything else, as far as the mental illness goes, was the exact same. You learn how to be a valued member of society again. You learn how to be positive, how to trust, which was huge, and how to love not just your family and friends, but yourself. So when I came home, I, uh, I wanted to do something. I wanted to give back. I wanted, I'm a police officer. I love helping my community. I was a firefighter before that. I'm a veteran. I wanted to do something for my, for my community. So in the hospital, I always said I refuse to lose. So that's why we named our not-for-profit Refuse to Lose Against PTSD. We raised funds through presentations, through Selling shirts, hats, different swag, um, and through donations to help first responders get the treatment that insurance companies don't cover. Not only do we raise the funds for them to get the treatment, but probably the bigger part of it is we raise the funds to help the families of them. One thing that I kept saying when I didn't want to go was, well, who's going to cut the grass or who's going to shovel the snow? Or You come up with every excuse you can think of not to go. So we take that excuse away from them. We provide the groceries. We give McDonald coupons or whatever for the kids, movies, movie night. Uh, we take care of the grass. We take care of the snow. Whatever it takes to get that first responder or veteran to get treatment and improve their way of life. So that's been going on now for, we've been about three years now, just under three years. Uh, We've raised over $70,000, a lot of it did go to the Hamilton Burn Unit, uh, for obvious reasons that was the first year. And then the rest of it now goes to Badge Life, Wounded Warriors Canada, um, Boots on the Ground, There's, there's always new ones popping up here and there, so we like to support them and give the opportunity to every first responder that needs the treatment, no matter where they are. That's, uh, that's my story right now.
1: It briefly came up yesterday, but I'll just be honest out of the gates. I, when it comes to this idea of mental health and the word, I think if we asked everyone in this room what their definition of mental health was, we'd get 200 different answers, and I think continuing to talk about it and call it mental health and end the stigma, which I know Phil doesn't agree with, um, I think it just feeds into it. And so the way I approach the conversation is I call it human performance. It's a little bit sexier too, which is nice. But it's, if, if we're not feeling the best we can, we're probably not performing the best we can. And I don't care if it's anxiety, depression, if it's clinical, non-clinical. I want you to feel better so you can be better and better for you, better for your family, better for work, everything. So that's how I approach the conversation and and that's how I have on the podcast with many other people that have been through these mental wellness adversities, however you would word it. So my first question to you, Phil, is what is is PTSD? What is it like? What is the experience like? If you don't mind us asking, because I think that could be one of the most powerful things we take away today.
0: Sure. Well, like I said, I'm um, a police officer. We've watched a million training videos of how to approach people that suffer from mental illness, and I mean, I'm a cop. You think you know everything, right? <laughs> so I thought I was pretty educated in it, and I think a lot of people do, but until you go through it, you have no clue. Um, the nightmares, the flashbacks especially, I'll zone out for 30 minutes at a time sometimes and not have a clue. I think I'm having a conversation with my wife and my kids but meanwhile I haven't said a word. It's just going on in my head that we're having the conversation. Uh, the anger, as I said in the one slide it's all in capitals because the anger was by far the worst feeling for me. Um, being tired, mentally exhausted, I was telling the guys when I came in today, I was in bed by 7, 7.30 last night, um, this is, it's very mentally draining. I'm comfortable talking in front of people, that doesn't, never has bothered me, I don't get embarrassed, I'm pretty much, I say what I feel and I, what I think. But it's always, it's your mind not shutting down. 24-7, my mind races. Um, I start doing meditation and yoga, which helps immensely.
1: Um, Yeah. Thank you again for sharing that. You talked about the anger side of things and the frustrations that come with everything you've experienced since that day. And I think a great question that was asked yesterday was forgiveness. And and the one thing I find intriguing about forgiveness is it's it's unbelievable really what, what people say we, we can or can't overcome or can't forgive. And, and I was lucky enough to have other people on the podcast that had to work through forgiveness and they're amazing answers because society wants to get back at people and get back at things and fuel the anger. And I wondered what your approach is to this whole conversation of forgiving a situation that you, have by no means, had to go through. Do you need a page
0: No, I got it this time. He had to help me yesterday. I was telling everyone that the hardest, I don't wear shoelaces anymore because I can't tie them. The hardest things for me to do are turn pages in paper and to try and need a bag of chips out of the bag because I can't see where I'm going and I can't feel what I'm picking up. It drives my kids nuts. It's my hand's in there for like half an hour trying to get one chip. <laughs> So yeah, a lady yesterday asked about forgiveness if I forgive. His name's Carl, if I had forgiven Carl. Uh, And I elected to just read. I have a presentation that I give a a lot to first responders. Um, So if you will, I will just read exactly what I wrote down, because I think that's the the best way to to say it. I didn't quite understand the magnitude that this simple gesture would have on my recovery. It wasn't until I was at a retreat that I forgave Carl for his actions that day. I remembered exactly when it happened and I broke down and cried uncontrollably. It was the greatest feeling I, I had had in my recovery up until that point. The doctor said something that will forever be ingrained in my mind, she said if he could have come from a better place, he would have. No truer words have ever been spoken to me. This is something that we can use in every situation in life. No one wants to live with a mental illness. No one wants the police at their house every day. No one wants to be fighting with their spouse relentlessly all the time. I repeat it numerous times a day to myself. If he could have come from a better place, he would have. For the first time, I was able to see in my mind myself, Tanya, and our kids smiling and laughing. It was an out-of-body experience as we sat beside a campfire and I could zoom in on each of our faces. We were laughing and sharing stories. I'm not able to sit around a fire any longer in real life. This was always our favorite thing to do when going up north or just sitting in our backyard in the summer. It's nice that in my mind, I can still envision it it as a positive and not as a negative anymore. I firmly believe that everything happens for a reason. With all the pain and struggles, both physically and mentally, that our family has had to endure. I can honestly say I would not change this for anything. It has allowed us the opportunity to help other officers, first responders, and veterans in a way that I would never have thought of. I think I'm giving back to my community way more now than I ever did before, and I'm very proud of that. I did not forgive Carl for himself. I did it for myself and my family. As I read on on Facebook, forgiving is not forgetting, It is remembering without anger. It frees up your power, heals your body, mind, and spirit. Forgiveness opens a pathway to a new place of peace where I can live despite what has happened to me.
1: One of the questions I always ask in these types of conversations is what is your approach to the idea that it's not a one-time fix. It's not a one-time cure that that you'll just get rid of PTSD tomorrow or the next day. It's that this may be an ongoing thing with the hopes of it being totally under control and forgotten about at one point. But what is your approach to, this is something I'm going to continue to have to work at. How do you approach that every day, and and even more importantly, on the tough days?
0: Well, some days it's tough just to get out of bed. Um, But I am well aware that this is something that I will have to deal with potentially for the rest of my life. Um, I've learned what my triggers are. I don't like to use the word trigger, but I've learned what irritates me. I know when my anxiety is about to skyrocket. Um, Power positivity is definitely my number one go-to. I have to keep moving forward I have to keep trying to inspire other people that live with this that maybe aren't ready to start talking about it, that they don't want to admit it to themselves or they, they're afraid of what others, their family and their friends or colleagues, what they're going to say. I choose to make myself vulnerable for those that aren't ready to do that yet. Um,
1: yeah. How have your relationships changed since being open about the issue you're dealing with, since making that change or call to go get the help you needed? How has it changed with friends, family, other relationships? I'll start off with my partner.
0: Um, Myself and my partner, we haven't talked in two years now. I love him. I'm always there for him when he's ready but he's not ready to admit that he needs help yet. Um, I compare it to what you see in the movies and on TV when you watch like the SWAT teams and stuff, how their families are at each other's birthday parties and picnics and everything else. That's exactly what we were. We were, we were partners for 11 years. He is my brother. Um, and when, he, when he's ready for help, I will be the first one there. It was one of the hardest decisions I've ever made in my life, but I realized that being around him brings me down and I'm in survival mode because I know I'm just a quick decision away from having those bad thoughts again. Um, I have to remain cognizant of that fact that Take, for instance, you see in the newspapers and TV almost every day, another first responder dying by suicide, and you hear the politicians and everyone say, it's going to be an epidemic. And my answer to them is, get your head out of the sand because it is an epidemic, and unless something is done and this is covered by insurance, there's going to be more and more suicide, not just for first responders, for anybody going through any struggle in life. You could be on cloud nine one minute, and something set you off, and within a minute, honestly, I can, it just comes on sometimes, and I will go into a deep depression. My family, sorry. I actually forgot what the question was. That's why I stopped.
1: (laughs) I was just curious about your relationships with with people in your life, and and I guess family's one of them for sure.
0: Yeah, my family, anyone here that's going through struggles, you know are your hardest critics. Uh, My mom and dad, they're both almost 80. They still have the old uh, rotary dial phone. I was telling everyone yesterday that my mom and just... Until recently, she, she was amazed that she has a laptop. She thought it had to be plugged in for her to use the laptop. She thought it had to be plugged into her home PC for her to use it, so. They, they don't get it. They do now. Um, my mom's always had my back, but they don't have access to the internet where today's world we do for, for most people. My sister and I, we used to be best friends. We see each other a couple times a year now. She just has no clue. She thinks I should be back at work. She thinks I fake it. She's the receptionist. I tell her a million times, or I was telling her a million times, maybe you should do some research. Um, But she's just ignorant to the fact and I can't change that. My younger brother, he doesn't really talk too much about anything. I think he gets it. I know his wife gets it. Um, but him and I, we've never had that relationship where we actually talk about it, uh, per se, like that. But if, if you walk away with anything from today's talk, it's don't give up on your family members and your friends, and fam- friends as well. But if you know someone's struggling, don't give up on them. They are gonna say and do things that aren't the norm for what they do. But you have to remember it's also not them. It's everything that's going on inside of them. Um, I'm, I said it to my table earlier, I'm, I'm lucky in the fact that I have scars all over my body because people know that I'm injured. They see the scars, they see a cast on someone's leg, they know that person's injured. There are so many people out there that don't have that benefit and go undiagnosed or pay the ultimate sacrifice because of, because of this.
1: You said initially you weren't diagnosed. When, when you were diagnosed, how did that change your approach?
0: Honestly, I was relieved that I was diagnosed because I knew that there was something going on with me. I just didn't want to admit it. Um, I was also on a lot of medication. Um, When I left Hamilton General, one of the nurses said to me, oh, you came in as a police officer and you left as a drug addict. And I laughed at her, not realizing the seriousness behind that. I found doctors were very eager and quick to start prescribing medication to me um, without really knowing the consequences of that. When I started, I went to CAMH and started coming off my medication because I wouldn't drive while I was on it. Um, then I was introduced to marijuana, which is a whole funny story in itself, actually. Um, and I'm happy to say, other than the mandatory pills I take for, for uh, depression, I am 100% off my medication now. Um, thank you. It was funny because I, I had to reinvent myself three times in my life, before the fire, on medication, and now after medication. It's been a whirlwind of emotions and feelings. And I found when I was on the medication, I couldn't, I couldn't cry. I couldn't think. I couldn't do anything. I was a walking zombie, just straight face, no feelings at all, no empathy, no nothing. Um, and then when I started coming off the medication, I was crying all the time. And we call those sacred tears because it's, it's a good thing. It's your body releasing the stress, like you were talking about earlier with the breathing. Uh, it releases that stress. And there's a few other things that I do as well. Um, one of the easiest things, before I get into the marijuana part, is uh, hugging. As, as oddly enough, when I see you today, I give you a hug. It's something that's... So easy for all of us to do, as, as long as the other person wants to hug. <laughs> just don't go hug people. Um, but you'll find every time you hug somebody, all of a sudden you're stress-free. For that split second, you just, you're relaxed. Maybe you might cry, sacred tears, but it's your body de-stressing. It's something so simple that we can always do. So with the marijuana part, so I wouldn't go see a pot doctor uh, because of the stigma. I didn't, want to, um, I didn't want to come out in court during testimony. I didn't want all my cases thrown out because lawyers will say that I was high, blah, blah, blah. So I walked in, and you have to give her your list of prescriptions. So I did. and Little old lady. And she goes, geez, man, you're on enough drugs to kill a horse. Like, why haven't you been here before? So I told her I was afraid of the stigma. He goes, you want to talk about stigma? I'm a 90-year-old Indian lady trying to sell you weed. (laughs) Okay, then. (laughs) So that's why I started it.
1: (laughs) Knowing you have all those, like, I I know you've only given a couple examples, but knowing you have all those tactics and tools that you use to allow yourself to, to live triumphantly with the complex PTSD that you have, what is your approach knowing that, okay, there's actually, there's no fix necessarily to this right now, knowing there's long-term work that has to be done. How do you remain energized to do it? What is your reason to, to keep pushing? And, and also, I guess, accepting the fact that this is forever or, or potentially will cause trouble for a while.
0: Well, my approach to it is to remain positive. Um... I also am currently, I go to Brock University for psychology. Uh, my goal is to be a clinician for first responders suffering from uh, occupational stress injuries, depression, anxiety, PTSD or, or whatnot. So that's definitely a driving factor for me. Um, my family, I've I crossed a lot of lines with my kids, especially, um, and I'll be forever trying to make up for the things I said um, when I was really sick. Um, it's not an excuse. It happened, and I just have to make up for it. I have twin 20-year-olds and a 15-year-old. Um, one, I don't know if one of the twins is still in therapy. Um, she won't tell me. The 15-year-old's in therapy. Um, shes <laughs> It was a lot for them when it happened. Um, the youngest one was by my side for the entire month and a half that I was in the coma, and then she was basically homeschooled, so she took, she sees a lot of it. The two older ones, they're not at home, they haven't been at home in a couple of years, so they're, they're uh, doing much better. But,
1: and off of that, how have your relationships changed with people in your life since... You've either told them or they've heard of what you're going through. How has that changed relationships with with strangers, with loved ones, with friends, with family? Well, it's twofold.
0: Once again, going back to Maestro. Is he still there? There he is. I don't have my glasses on. Sorry. Um, He was talking about taking away negative energy people. I call them energy vampires. Um, There are people that are sick and they do need help, but they refuse to admit that. They just want to suck the life out of you. Of um, unfortunately, very unfortunately, because I think about him every day, my partner and I haven't talked in a couple years. Um, he started drinking excessively. I tried to get him help. He refused to. And for my own personal growth and personal health, I had to eliminate him from my life. And that was one of the hardest things to do. Him and I are partners for 11 years. It's kind of like in the movies when you see like the SWAT teams and stuff where they all barbecue together and hang out together 24 seven. And and that's what we were, our families were that close. But I realized I wasn't gonna get better if I kept surrounding myself with that. And I'm always here for him when he does want help. 100% I'll be the first person at his door.
1: Amazing. Before we get into the work and, and the impact you're making with Refuse to Lose, because it's, it's absolutely incredible, could you give a little bit of, uh, I mean, I, I know we saw some pictures, but you don't like to sugarcoat things, but what you actually went through and, and how you're, you, know, you don't have feeling in, in your limbs. and what, Could you give, a, a, I guess, a brief description of some of the things you dealt with initially and that you're still dealing with today? Sure.
0: I, uh, I go to therapy pretty much every day. I have hand therapists, I have skin therapists, which is the worst thing ever. Um, I call it massage because it makes my head feel good, I guess, I'd say. Uh, basically, they take a pair of brass knuckles and they scrape it along my skin for an hour. Um, I was crying at first, now it's just, it's numb, it's, I don't know if I'll have to do it forever. Uh, the only part that actually couldn't skin graft was my backside. Hence why I don't sit down very long. Uh, The shearing from my clothes caused it to blister and the wounds still open up and whatnot. Um, I go to my psychologist every week. I am a very active member with the wellness unit with uh, Niagara Regional Police. A couple years ago, just when all the cards were stacked against us and we were starting to get our life back, the NRP sent me a letter saying there was no feasible position for me with, within the Niagara Regional Police Service any longer. Um, to say it broke my heart is, is an understatement. Um, I fought it, I fought WSIB, and I ended up winning. Um, so when I do return to work, which will be April 2022, I will be working in the wellness unit to help other officers there.
1: Now, taking on or stepping into this next chapter of life, educating yourself on very much the topic of psychology and mindset and optimism, what is it that you've realized to now have the ability to be the outside-looking at others that are going through things. What have you learned about people that has either helped them decide to get the help they need or kind of guided them to keep going down the road they're already going down? What have you learned about people in, uh, you could say on the education side, but also on the work that you're doing now of of trying to help others?
0: Well, I've learned a lot about empathy to start. And if you're not too sure of the difference between empathy and sympathy, check out Brene Brown um, on TV. I've learned to talk about what's going on in my head. If people ask me how I'm doing, and if I am having a shitty day, I tell them. I don't just say I'm okay because I don't want to burden people anymore. Um, I've realized I have to become vulnerable. I have to share my thoughts, and my feelings with everybody, especially my family. Um, as police officers, we don't like to take our work home with us and we don't want to share all the gruesome details with everybody, but we need to. There's a way to Disney version, a lot of things, but you have to let everybody know what's going on. You have to express to people that you're human and you heard as well.
1: Um, I, I think the one thing is now that you're from the outside looking in or outside looking at other people, able to reflect on what you went through, reflect on what they're going through, what is something that you realize is, okay, there's some, this is what's missing and this is what we need more of, or we need to stop saying X and start saying Y?
0: Sure. Well, one thing we have to keep, we have to stop saying, end the stigma. Um, I used to say it all the time. I'm a culprit of that myself. But I realized that it's not about ending the stigma. It's about changing the culture. It's about education, getting the younger generation of people familiar with mental health and letting them know it's okay not to be okay. Once we change the culture, the stigma will end. It's just gonna be a matter of time. I've seen a huge difference in the last five years already. Uh, I'm very excited for the next five, ten years because I know it will happen. I'm hoping it's in my lifetime. I'm hoping the government takes notice. Um, I've had the opportunity to speak to uh, Congress, couple years back about Bill C-211, which was introduced by MPP Todd Doherty from Out West. Um, This is a federal framework, so that no matter where you are in the country, um, you don't have to relive your story every time you go see a doctor, no matter where you are. It's a computer system where all of your information is already in there. It was passed unanimously. They, they, they usually give people five, 10 minutes to talk. I took two hours, I read. I went with a binder this thick of letters of just officers that I know. Um, and they allowed me the opportunity to read every single letter in that book. And as I said, they voted unanimously right after, so. Um, a lot of times, like I said, I used to tell people that I was okay because I didn't want to be a burden but people kept pressing me. I just gave a presentation actually last night and my sergeant came. And uh, a couple years ago, he had to make a decision basically of do I want to be Phil's friend or do I want to save Phil's life? And he made the decision to save my life and he set me up on an intervention and I was pissed off for a very long time But now he's one of, there's about a handful of people that can honestly say saved my life. And he is one of them. And that was the first time he came to see me speak. And it was was very emotional. It was fantastic. Someone in the audience asked who Phil's hero is. This opens up another can, actually. I was the first officer on scene when my uncle had a heart attack. He was a platoon chief with the fire department. That's why I wanted to be a firefighter. And I had to give him CPR and he didn't make it. And he was always my hero. That was a a very traumatic part of my life for sure. But hands down, my Uncle Bob.
1: The next question was what kind of support Phil received from his coworkers? In some of those pictures
0: you see was my old chief. At the end of the Spartan race, the gentleman that was beside me His name's Jeff McGuire. He's now the president of the Ontario Association Chiefs of Police. When this happened, and I could probably take a poll throughout the world, and you're not going to hear this anywhere else, every weekend he was there cutting our grass. He shoveled our snow. He took care of my wife and my kids. The day of the Spartan race, we did that race because... The last obstacle is jumping over a fire. And that's something I wanted to do for myself. It was his grandson's first birthday that day. It was pissing down rain. And he stood there all day waiting for me to cross that finish line. And uh, took, we, we had one picture together. And then he said, OK, I, I got to get out of here. My family's going to kill me, right? So, <laughs> But that's, that's a true leader
1: in my eyes. The next question was what kind of effect counseling has had for Phil. And I actually added in some of my own two cents. I'll add a little bit to that. I, I had a firefighter on the podcast early on that uh, does the combat challenge. So it was a little bit about mental health in the fire the, or mental wellness in the fire role, but then also the combat challenge. And he said after calls, if they're intense calls, by choice of just the people on his unit, five or six individuals, they come back to the round table and they say, all right, let's go. Let's talk about what we just went through. Everyone open up about it. So it, what I, well, I guess where I'm going with that is one thing, or the only thing we really measure on the counseling side is registered professional counseling. We don't measure and release statistically a conversation at this table right here. We never measure that, so we don't know what it can do. And, I mean, a a friendship started off, I would consider somewhat counselling. It wasn't in two chairs in a room by ourselves with a grid on the wall that says, you know, counselling Ontario. It was was outside on a walk, but I think that's a form of counselling we don't measure, but we should continue to make a part of cultures. And this individual that I talked to was every... You know, 6'4", mustache, handlebars, sleeves, everything, uh, which I think stereotypically maybe would be someone that wouldn't be as open and, and I hope I'm not putting my foot in my mouth. Um, but, and he was the first one to say, no, everyone's sitting down. You're not going to get it under your gear. We're talking about this. Let's chat about what just happened. So I think it, the values in the counseling we don't measure, too. Um- Oh, what? I'm
0: sorry. I was just going to say, the way we met is uh, last year, Ben and I, for the strides for the general, we were the two patient ambassadors. So that's how we met. We just, we walked, was it 5K? I don't remember.
1: Let's say it was more than that. It was like 20, 25,000 25, kilometers. Yeah. <laughs> we walked it. No, and that's where we, that's where our friendship began. The next question was what kind of medication film may be taking and what his opinion is on medication and mental wellness? Well, when I, when I left the general, the nurses were joking, telling me that I was,
0: I came in as a police officer and I was leaving as a drug addict. I laughed at him. I never realized how true of a statement that really was. Um, I found doctors. I hope there's none in here once again. Um... I found they were very eager to start prescribing me medication, not knowing or admit knowing what was going to happen when I was mixing them all together. Um, I'm on, well, I was on a bunch of different opioids and then got the pen from my arms, a um, bunch of different antidepressants. I can't remember all of them. Sorry, just both fell over there. Um, so anyway, so I started... I wanted to come off my medication. So I went and saw a pot doctor in Hamilton here, Dr. Stathi. And when you go in, you have to tell her what medication you're on, so I did. I have my list on my phone because I can't remember my name half the time, so I just list them off. And She's like, geez, man, you're on enough, med- you're on enough pills to kill a horse. Why haven't you come in here before? I'm like, honestly, because of the stigma. Um, I don't want to come out in court that I take weed because a good lawyer will have my testimony thrown out. And I just don't, I love being a police officer. I love everything about policing. I just don't want that on my conscience that people think that I smoke weed. Afraid of the stigma, actually, is what I said. And She looked at me and she goes, you want to talk about stigma? I'm a little old Indian lady trying to sell you pot. I'm like, oh, true, very good point. (laughs) I'll take it. So uh, since starting weed, um, I just vape it, or I have CBD oil that I take at night. Um, I've come off all the medication. I had to go through KMH, but I've I've come off of all the medication that I can. Um, Probably for the rest of my life now, I'm at a steady... um, I have my one antidepressant in the morning, my gabapentin at night, and another antidepressant at night as well. And other than that, I'm completely clean. Um, that's why I start driving again. I was scared to drive for a long time, but then also I knew that I was stoned from my meds and I already, I already, I already have enough on my plate. I did not want to get in a car accident knowing that I shouldn't be driving. Um, WSIB is paying for me to go to Brock for three years. And they wanted me to take all online courses, which we were talking about earlier. They wanted me to take online courses because I wasn't driving and whatnot. And I looked at them and I was like, what good is that going to do me by taking psychology online if I can't get out of the house? So I, I spent the whole summer. Um, I went to Brock every day, and I just walked around the halls by myself, just got used to it. Now, still, come September, it was uh, an eye-opener with all the students back, and I do have a very hard time with that, as Ben and I were saying. I have a very hard time dealing with people. The schoolwork I find easy. It's being around that many people that I find hard. Um, But I also know now that my anxiety, yeah, it might be up here, but I know it's going to drop back down. I just have to persevere, work myself through it. I rub my fingers a lot. For some reason, that works for me. Um, yeah, so that's, that's how I am now. Um, I did have another thought, and I really don't remember what it was. I'll be in the middle
1: of another whole conversation. I'll come back to you because I know I'll remember there was a slideshow behind us of Phil's story and one of the images was of his dog and someone had a question if that is his service dog.
0: Yeah, she is trained. Her name's Zena. She's a princess warrior. She's a 120-pound lap dog. Um, she wasn't trained as a therapy dog. She's trained actually through work as a canine from the canine unit. Uh, she wasn't in the unit. We just I like having her trained that way. I'm good friends with the trainer, so we trained her that way, um, which is quite funny now because she knows the smell of weed, and it sets her off. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, she, she is my therapy dog, 100%. I go... She does. She senses it through all of us. Um, at least we think so. She knows when to jump up on you and she, yeah, I think all dogs know that though, but
1: she's definitely my therapy dog. The next question was if Phil has any type of mantra that he turns to when times are tough.
0: You mentioned moving forward. Um, I I say it quite often, moving forward, forward always. Um, I wear an arrow around my neck. Arrows can only be shot one direction and that's forward. So if I'm having a bad time or if I, I realize that I'm starting to relapse, I think of that arrowhead. And it, it's just something small that works for me. It's, it's something that's always in my head that I have to keep moving forward. Um, no good comes from going back
1: last but not least, some important details about Refuse to Lose, the people they support around the world, not just locally, where they have events locally and how you can support.
0: It's everywhere across North America, including Australia and um, England, um, Texas, Minnesota, throughout all of Canada, uh, Mexico. Uh, the, The amount of mail that we get is unbelievable. Um, It's a full-time job in itself, keeping track of it. Um, I give presentations to whoever's going to listen, a lot of students, mostly first responders, uh, but anyone who will listen, I I will spread the word, if you will. Um, I think it's a very important message to get out there. I think the more people that know about it, the more comfortable we are talking about it, And if I can change one person's life, doesn't matter if I'm speaking to 300 people or two people, if it makes the difference in one person's life, it is well worth the trip. Um, If you want to follow us, go on Refuse to Lose Against PTSD on Facebook, and you'll see everything that's coming up on there. We always, that's what my wife does. I mean, that's a full-time job in itself. She sits there and finds articles to post, inspirational quotes, inspirational articles. Um, We, It sounds kind of bad, but it's not. Um, We do keep track of suicides in Canada because the government feels this isn't necessary or they just don't want it out. So us, along with Badge of Life, we we do keep track so that there is statistics out there. So when the government is ready to um, acknowledge the fact that this is happening, the stats are there.
1: That brings us to the end of another Heroic Minds podcast. Of course, the link to Refuse to Lose Facebook page is in the description of this episode, as well as my email if you want to send me a message to keep the conversation going. And last but not least, if you are enjoying these podcasts, remember to leave a positive review on whatever platform it is you're using to listen. I'm Ben Finelli. This is the Heroic Minds podcast. We'll talk again soon.